Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. One Friday night, a number of years back, a woman came on TV and tried to be funny. That whole fitness thing runs in my family, though, I think. that My grandmother started walking five miles a day when she was 60. She's 97 today, and we don't know where the hell she is. That was Ellen DeGeneres in her first appearance on The Tonight Show. Uh, I'm kidding. We know where she is. She's in prison. But, um, I'm kidding again, you know. I kid a lot, because uh, I'm a comedian. Uh, a lot of people ask me, were you funny as a child? And uh, no, I was an accountant. But, um... What DeGeneres was doing was something that happened all the time in 1986 and still happens all the time, stand-up comedy. Just one person on stage using just their mouth and their wit to get laughs. Wayne Fetterman is a comedian who has studied the history of stand-up and teaches about comedy at the University of Southern California. And Fetterman argues stand-up, as we know it, doesn't go back all that far. It was only really being invented about 100 years before DeGeneres did her stint on Johnny Carson's Late Night Show. One of the folks who helped invent it during the mid-1800s was a guy named Artemis Ward, a favorite author of President Abraham Lincoln. Ward made a whole bunch of money doing, essentially, stand-up gigs around the country, which is how he met another pioneer of stand-up, Mark Twain. Twain, as you know, wrote those these incredible novels and then opened this publishing company so he could publish them because he thought he was getting ripped off and because he was a terrible businessman, was basically broke. And it was like, hey, Artemis Ward got people to pay a dollar a person. That would be about $20 today to see him do these lectures. Maybe I can do these humorous lectures. I'm a funny guy. And that's how he made a lot of money towards the later part of his life. What was unique about all these folks, from Artemis Ward to Ellen DeGeneres, was that they weren't funny because they were actors or silly singers or dancers. They basically just got up on a stage as themselves and said funny stuff. And we listened. Will Rogers, who was born in Cherokee Nation, an area that would become Oklahoma, turned into a star of comedy during the Great Depression. He joked, my people didn't come over on the Mayflower, but we were there to meet the folks when they landed. And one of the areas of comedy where Rogers staked his claim, Fetterman says, was an area that proved to have a lasting legacy, political humor. His whole thing, Will Rogers, was all I know is what I read in the paper. And he had like lines, uh, we have the best Congress money can buy. Right. <laughs> That still works. We have the best Congress money can buy. Still works today. Still, Will Rogers, still crushing it. <laughs> um, and then he had a great line. He goes, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Mm -hmm. So way, way, way more gentle than what passes for political comedy today, which is more about eviscerating somebody rather than like, hey, we're all in this together and we have slight differences. Fetterman, who hosts the podcast The History of Stand-Up, notes that in the years when stand-up was a relatively new creation, it fortuitously bumped up against another relatively new creation, radio. And the combination was explosive. Indeed, the reason that we all know about stand-up comedians today may well be because of what radio did to comedy. Comedy is always an early adapter to new technologies. We thrive on it. Just a quick example would be podcasting. Like when that came around, 
comedian supercharged podcasting immediately. We're talking about sports and movies, and Mark Marin has this incredible show where he interviews comedians, and it's just it continues to this day. Radio brought comedians into Americans' homes, rural Americans, Americans who couldn't afford to buy a ticket to stage shows, and a new brand of star was born. You would only see maybe Burns and Allen maybe once a year or something if they toured through your town, whereas once they get on that radio show, it was every week. Or Jack Benny, every Sunday night, the Jell-O program. Or Bob Hope with Pepsodent. A generation later, stand-up comedy would be, no surprise, an early adopter of another game-changing technology. In the late 1940s, a few thousand Americans had a TV set. By the early 1950s, 12 million sets had been plopped down in American living rooms. Like all technologies, TV would favor certain stars and not turn out to be so great for others. Fetterman says, consider two seemingly similar shows. Both debuted in 1948, one on CBS, one on NBC. The CBS show was called Toast of the Town, later called The Ed Sullivan Show, which people now think of as like, oh, that's the guy that introduced the Beatles or Elvis Presley to... America. Right. Okay? And then on NBC, they had basically television's Big Bang moment, which was Milton Berle hosting the Texaco Star Theater on Tuesday nights. Oh, we're the men of Texaco. We work from Maine to Mexico. There's nothing like the Texaco of ours. Our show tonight is powerful. We'll wow you with an hour full of howls from a shower full of stars. People just went to bars to see this thing on television, and he did like an old-fashioned, very raucous, vaudeville-type variety show. And he was dancing with people and dressing as a woman, as Karma Miranda. And, like, he was just, it it was outrageous is the word I would use. He was so big that he was on the cover of Time magazine and Newsweek magazine the same week. Wow. And his nickname is now Mr. Television. So he was the guy. But here's the interesting part of this story is that he burns out after like six years of doing this show. But Ed Sullivan show, Toast of the Town, and he's a newspaper columnist. He's very ill at ease in front of the TV camera. But he also puts on a variety show. He hosts it. We have a big show for you tonight, and we're going to kick it off with a lot of comedy. George Carter. Rodney Danger. That becomes a staple of Sunday night television watching. For almost 30 years. It ends in 1971. There's been no variety show on primetime television that's come close to that record. Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks and Flip Wilson. So Sullivan on every show had at least one stand-up comedian, sometimes two, or ventriloquist or comedy team on almost every single show. So people really got to see a stand-up do five, six, seven minutes of stand-up. And so that that was the first time people, like, saw people doing stand-up. Yeah. Well, let me actually play you a clip of somebody who appeared. This is her on The Ed Sullivan Show. Um, this is the comedian Joan Rivers, who would, of course, go on to have an incredibly long and successful career. And uh, she's doing stand-up here. A girl, a girl, you're 30 years old. You're not married. You're an old maid. A man, he's 90 years old, he's not married, he's a catch. It's a whole different thing. (laughs) Isn't that so? Yes, yes! It kills me! Yeah, but 
an extra man. Bring him along. Bring him along. He's 98. Bring him. Bring him. He's dead. Bring him. <laughs> I can hear you laughing. It's still pretty funny, isn't it? To me, it is. It is. Me, no, it is. It totally is. You know, the, the age difference with men and women, that men are a catch older, but that's not so true for women. It it totally works, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that obviously, obviously, all you have to do is see these Hollywood movies where there's, it's still happening, where right. the guy's 50 and she's 24 and their husband and wife. How hard was it, you know, for a woman, um, somebody like Joan Rivers, to create a really successful career, as she did for herself, um, in stand-up at the time that she did it? Well, it was a boys' club, and it was it was hard. I mean, at one point she was part of a comedy team, and then she hired some writers to help her out. But she was very determined to be part of this scene. She just loved it, and it seen Phyllis Diller do stand up. And just a side note about Phyllis Diller: Phyllis Diller always performed with gloves on her hand because she felt like when she saw a clown in the circus, they were usually wearing gloves. So that's how. Phyllis Diller felt about stand-up like, oh, this is like an act you're doing. You're huh. putting on this character. Okay. Whereas Joan Rivers was like, oh, I'm a, a girl, you know, I'm a lonely girl from Larchmont, and I'm trying to meet a guy, even though I think she was married for a little of that. But, you know, that was her. She was the single gal trying to make her way through the world in a very modern way. It's, again, again, this is always, stand-up is always generational. So, like, that was groundbreaking for Joan Rivers to be doing back then on The Sullivan Show. You know, we were talking about what was happening on TV in the 50s and the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. Um, meanwhile, you also had people who were not doing such sort of broad-based comedy as your Bob Hopes and your Joan Rivers, um, and they were kind of pushing the envelope on what could be said in public. Um, one of them was Lenny Bruce, and we're going to play a little bit of that, and then I'll ask you about uh, that. Let's do it. If the bedroom is dirty to you, then you are a true atheist. Because if you have any of the mores, the superstitions, if anyone in this audience believes that God made his body and your body is dirty, the fault lies with the manufacturer. Wayne, tell me a little bit about Lenny Bruce and, and, you know, what his role was in, in comedy at that time. Other comedians had been arrested on obscenity before Lenny Bruce. That was not new. But what was new was that he made it part of his act and he made it part of his persona. And there was a Time magazine article that called him and these other comedians from the 50s the sick comedians because they would talk about things that were a little outrageous. And he he was like, oh, this isn't an insult. I'm going to run with this. This is going to be the name of my album. Hmm. So between that and writing books, he started actually making fun and that routine you're playing right there is sort of like part of it he had a routine called religion incorporated and he made fun of religion now that was something comedians first of all they weren't barely swearing on stage let alone attacking someone's belief system i mean that is a huge right huge yeah, right. run for a comedian to do so a lot of the police in these big cities tend to be irish catholic and they would arrest him for obscenity if he said any of these words. We would say were, you know, words that usually weren't in public at the time, and he would say them on stage and get arrested a number of times. Hmm. He never spent time in jail, but he was on bail. And between that and the heroin, he uh, eventually dies in 1966 of an overdose. 
But I think why he's crucial to this story is that he really used his life as the platform to build his stand-up act. And he started out as, like, he did impressions. If you see that old television clip when he's on Talent Scouts, he's just doing impressions. You know, just very mainstream-y kind of comedian. But once he went through this Rubicon and had this understanding, like, oh, my views of the world, my point of view, which continues to today, obviously, all over late night, that's the basis of it. And my truth and what, how I'm seeing the hypocrisy of modern America. So it was, he was part of, you know, this, where people are using comedy as satire to make a broader point. And that clip is a perfect example. Do you think of it as there being sort of two streams of comedy? There's kind of like what was happening before millions of people every night on shows like The Ed Sullivan Show. And then there was people like Lenny Bruce and, you know, uh, Richard Pryor and George Carlin and people who were doing things. I'm not saying a lot of people didn't see those things, but they probably weren't going to be featured on The Ed Sullivan Show, I, I don't think. First of all, well, it was interesting. I mean, a lot of comedians have these development arcs. George Carlin is one of them. If you watch early on, he's very buttoned down. He's doing has a necktie. His dream is to be a big TV slash movie comedian. His idol was Danny Kay. That's the career oh, yeah. he wanted. Yeah. And then Richard Pryor, same thing. They all go to the village. They try to come up with an act that'll get him on the Merv Griffin show and then later the Tonight Show. So this is very me- mainstream stuff that they aspire to. Danny Kay was in White Christmas, right? Yes. This is very mainstream. And then both Carlin and Pryor have this epiphany, usually when they're performing in Las Vegas, when they're like, what am I doing here? Well, who am I performing for? This is ridiculous. I don't like you know these businessmen that I have to make laugh with my Indian sergeant routine for George Carlin. And so they both kind of move away from that and get more personal. There's an incredible album that George Carlin put out called AMFM. And the AM side is like his mainstream. Time for the 11 o'clock report. First of all, the headlines. Welcome Wagon runs over newcomer. Pen Pal stabs pal with pen. And Jacques Cousteau drowns in bathtub accident. And then you flip it over and the FM side is way more edgy. It's dirty or it's more provocative. Birth control pills, uh are still on prescription. You still need a note to get laid, you know. So bad. Not only do you need a note, you gotta go to one guy to get the note, and then you gotta bring it to another guy. Everybody's in on it, you know. Oh, that's what you're doing at home, eh? Well, we're uh, keeping a record of it here in the store. Late at night, I read them. So you really see the guy's transition. So the key element in all of this was the record industry. Remember you were talking about technology? Yes. Once long playing records became popular with comedy fans, actually the first comedy nerds were these record collectors, starting with Mort Saul and then Shelley Berman and Bob Newhart, but also allowed people like Richard Pryor to put out those albums in the 70s that were very provocative. All of them had the N-word in the title. And then it all changes again in 1975, when HBO puts on their first hour stand-up uncensored special. You know, you mentioned Richard Pryor. 
I want to play uh, a little clip of him. This is part of when he talks about the N-word, obviously. A lot of this cannot be uh, cannot work for the radio. But um, this is prior talking about uh, why and how he doesn't like using that word anymore. That's a word that's used to describe our own wretchedness. And we perpetuate it now because it's dead. That word's dead. We men and women, we come from... We come from the first people on the earth. <laughs> you know, the first people on the earth were black people. Because anthropologists, white anthropologists, <laughs> so the white people go, that could be true, you know. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Leakey and them found people remains five million years ago in Africa. You know them <laughs> didn't speak French. <laughs> Wayne, I, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, this is something comedy has always done, but yeah. it always feels like it can say things in a funny way that in polite society would just never get discussed. Right. I mean, that's the great latitude that society allows comedians. And I think it's thrilling when you hear it. You're like, oh, I, I, I wouldn't say that. Or even that Lenny Bruce clip. You know, you would like go, okay, all right, he's saying something I've been thinking let me just say this. For a long time, comedians tried to not be on one or other side of the political aisle. They're like, oh, I have my comedy fans, and they may know I'm liberal or something like that. But I feel like that sort of has <laughs> has changed now, especially in late night. I know Johnny Carson had this incredible quote about that there's a great power that he has in late night. It's a danger. It's a real danger. Once you start that, you start to get that self-important feeling that what you say has great import. And, you know, strangely enough, you could use that show as a form. You could sway people. And I don't think you should as an entertainer. He made it his mission statement not to use or abuse that power in any way. And that's all changed. Huh. Okay, so let's take a quick break here. I'm talking to Wayne Fetterman about the invention of stand-up comedy. He's a faculty member at USC and an expert on the history of comedy. He's also a comedian himself. And when we come back, we're going to look at how things have changed when it comes to politics and comedy and how that change marks a huge break from the standards of folks like Johnny Carson. If you want to know more about the story of stand-up, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. We're going to have links and clips and this whole segment. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in a minute. Forties, a man named Kalman fought for the U.S. during the Second World War. He lived in New York. He'd been born into a Jewish family that had immigrated from Eastern Europe. His wife was also from an immigrant Jewish family that had come from Syria. One unusual thing about Kalman was that during his time in the service, he collected jokes, and he passed on that love of humor to his family. His son also collected jokes. In 1980, that son landed a bit part on the TV show Benson before being fired. The son was hoping to become a famous comedian, but he didn't really seem to be making a lot of headway. Then, in 1981, everything changed. Next guest is a young comedian who's making his very first appearance on The Tonight Show. He's originally from New York City, and he's uh, 
<laughs> Same guy who knows about your record. Uh, he's worked a lot of small clubs, both in New York and Los Angeles. Would you welcome him, please? Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry. He was one of those places comedians would perform at to sort of elevate their career to a stratospheric level. That's Wayne Fetterman, a comedian who hosts a podcast on the history of comedy and teaches at USC. He argues that stand-up comedy itself had really only been invented in the late 1800s by folks like Mark Twain, who realized there was money to be made, not just as funny actors or funny singers, but as regular people who wore regular clothes and simply told jokes from a stage, which is exactly what Jerry Seinfeld did when he first appeared with Johnny Carson. Television had proved to be a technological blockbuster for stand-up comedy. And for Seinfeld, Carson's stage was the place to be. Why? Well, Fetterman says, because of Carson's track record. What happened in 1973, Freddie Prinze goes on the show. He does this incredible set. Carson talks to him afterwards and says, oh, my God, there's no greater thrill I have than presenting these young comedians. And suddenly... The Tonight Show, which had just moved to L.A., all these comedians, Leno, Letterman, all these comedians moved to L.A. to try to get on The Tonight Show because Freddie Prinze becomes a sitcom star the very next week. Seinfeld's appearances on The Tonight Show would eventually, of course, make him famous, in large part for a certain brand of comedy, comedy that was rarely controversial but focused more on everyday situations and ways in which... He thought they were weird. I love when they have criminals on TV, especially these really wild, like the, uh, you know, they have a terrorist or a mass murderer. The guy's always covering up his face. You ever notice this when he's, when they're hauling him of in? Of course. Well, what is this man's reputation that he has to worry about protecting it? I mean, what, what is he, up for a big job promotion out of the office or something? I mean, is he yeah. Uh, interviews? Yeah, yeah. He's afraid, uh, afraid the boss is going to catch it and go, isn't that Johnson from sales? You know? <laughs> Fetterman says that after Freddie Prince Jr.'s appearance on The Tonight Show in the 1970s, impressing Carson became, as a stand-up comedian, your number one priority. Johnny Carson knighting you, anointing you as like a great comedian happens time and time again. It happens with Ellen. It happens with Jerry. It happens with Gary Shanley. It happens with Roseanne. It happens with Stephen Wright. It just keeps happening. Mm -hmm. So he was like the kingmaker for stand-up comedians. And a lot of times, I have a great quote where Roseanne said, doing well on The Tonight Show that first time was the greatest thrill of her life, even more than giving birth to children. <laughs> I know it's, I, and I know it just sounds funny, but it's true for her. It was true for her. Yeah, well, I mean, one comes with a lot of pain and, and Carson <laughs> probably doesn't, so that's yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. There's blood, there's a fan. <laughs> and Seinfeld is, I mean, he's a big obvious influence and idol of mine because of his insanely strong joke writing ability. It is just, it's state of the art. What makes you say it's state of the art? Because no, I feel like no one has surpassed him as far as breaking down these these little, he does a bit, three minutes on the cotton ball that came out of the top of the aspirin bottle. That. <laughs> and yeah. I remember he did a joke about like the wanted posters in the post office they would have the wa most wanted posters and he's like what why in the post office what do they want us to write these guys okay that was the idea <laughs> right and then one time i'm in a post office and seinfeld's behind me i go is this the post office where you wrote that bit he goes yeah 
And I go, that's it. That is modern stand-up Seinfeld comedy <laughs> where he's like, I'm in line trying to buy stamps. And he's like, oh, this could be four minutes of material, this thing right over my shoulder. So it feels like mainstream comedy on major networks um, has changed quite a bit. Um, I'm going to play you a little bit of Stephen Colbert on The Late Show, which is a show, by the way, that Ed Sullivan originally hosted. Here he is. Folks, Donald Trump is clearly losing it, and he did not have a surplus of it to start with. (laughs) The impeachment vultures are circling, and he's worried because he knows there's a lot of meat left on that bone. (laughs) And it's getting gamey. I'll give you the latest in our ongoing segment, Don and the Giant Impeach. (laughs) This afternoon, the White House delivered on their previous obstruction of justice with an official letter telling the House of Representatives that Trump will not cooperate with their impeachment inquiry. Yes, Trump... Don't get him wrong. Don't get him wrong. Trump would like to help with their inquiry into his conversation with Ukraine, but tragically, he has developed phone spurs. Uh, Wayne, why do you think things changed? In fact, when Colbert, my memory is that when Colbert went to CBS from Comedy Central, sort of from the niche to the broad, he kind of also felt like, oh, I shouldn't take too much of a position. Why did things change so much and so that we see so much more partisanship and joke telling, something I think... Leno, Sullivan, Carson would have been like, what's going on? Well, I have my own theory. My theory is this, and it's just Wayne Fetterman's theory. From Will Rogers through Bob Hope to Carson to Jack Parr, like Leno, people have been making fun of politicians. That's sort of like your job as a nighttime comedian to sort of make fun of those in power. So that's been going on. The partisan divide, I think, has to do with niche or niche, I don't know how to pronounce that word, (laughs) Um, programming, that it's more important. It's like you're not now trying to get the biggest audience anymore. It's just there's too many options Hmm. between all the late-night shows, all the streaming services, Facebook, kids are watching TikTok. Like, there's a lot going on, a lot of options. So I think when Stephen Colbert's like, I'm going to be the guy that eviscerates Donald Trump every night, there's enough people in the United States, we're like, that sounds like great entertainment to me. Like, I hate this guy, and I want someone to eviscerate him every night. Like, that's enough to get advertisers and to make the show popular and to be a voice in society. Do you see, uh, is there a person or a platform that you would point to and say, this is really something that's interesting and changing and keep your eye on this? Well, the fact that there was two incredible Netflix specials, one that really pushes what even the idea of stand-up can be, and that was Hannah Gadsby's special called Nanette. I, I do think I have to quit comedy, though. And seriously, uh, and it's probably not the forum to make such an announcement, is it? <laughs> um, in the middle of a comedy show. But I have been questioning, you know, this whole comedy thing. I don't, I don't feel very comfortable in it anymore. And I think it's healthy for an adult human to take stock, pause, and reassess. Uh, and when I first started doing the comedy over a decade ago, my favourite comedian was Bill Cosby. <laughs> there you go. It's very healthy to reassess, isn't it? And on the same network, same service, 
We have Dave Chappelle's newest special, Sticks and Stones. Yes, I voted for Hillary Clinton. Of course I did. But to be honest with you, at that point, that was like watching Darth Vader do the I Have a Dream speech. <laughs> that was mean as hell. She had already karate kid swept Bernie Sanders' legs from underneath him. Boy, it was hard voting for that I feel like that Chappelle's trying to be funny and, like, reacting. But that both those stand-up specials can have an impact, to me, points to the beautiful, continual train that keeps going down the track that stand-up has started so many years ago. So I think it's in as good a shape as ever. So I would say those Netflix specials are incredible. Hmm. Do you feel like Netflix is now the kind of kingmaker uh, queen maker. hundred percent. hundred percent. But that may, ch- you know, that's going to change. I just don't know how and when. But yes, the Netflix special is the modern day playing the palace, doing a spot on The Tonight Show, doing the Ed Sullivan show, being in the Ziegfeld Follies, mm-hmm. you know, having an HBO special in the 70s or 80s. Do you feel like uh, either bo- the people who uh, stand up in front of audiences or audiences themselves are really changing? I mean, when you think about your own career... Are we at a very different time than you've ever seen? Well, for the first time, like, audiences have a huge platform to <laughs> roar back at a comedian who used to be like, oh, you did your set and that was it. And I was like, oh, these people are hating what I'm saying. And it's uh, and comedians, you know, they're, they're sensitive folks. And look, free speech runs both ways. So I think it's creating an environment that's ultimately going to be healthy, but at times I think it can be extremely destructive. Wayne Fetterman is a comedian. He's a lecturer at the University of Southern California, and he also hosts the podcast, The History of Stand-Up. Wayne, thank you so much. This is great. You're very welcome. You start off by pretending you're a dancer with grace. You wiggle till they're giggling all over the place. And then you get a great big custard pie in the face. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. If you want to hear more about the impact that Jerry Seinfeld's sitcom had on comedy, we've got more on our website about ripples that we still see 20 years after that show about nothing. That's at innovationhub.org. 